a lot of it, I think, comes down to recognizing, have I communicated in a way where I've actually set them up for success? Because it doesn't count unless it's a really thoughtful, well-articulated boundary. Because if you are screaming and yelling at someone or you're being passive aggressive or you're doing things to get things, that doesn't count as a thoughtful expression of communication. You have not really given them the opportunity to be what you need. I'm Krati Mehra, and this is Beyond the Goals podcast. It's my attempt to help you revel in all that life has to offer without pressing pause on your hustle. We learn how to create healthier relationships, a healthier lifestyle, a career that brings us true joy, and a life that satisfies us on every level. Forget the conventional ideas of success and happiness, because we're going to live a life of value and create an impact that speaks to our place in the world. So let's get started. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Goals. This is episode number 42 and we are discussing how to stand up for yourself the right way with Amy Smith. Amy is a certified confidence coach, master certified hypnotherapist, speaker and personal empowerment expert. She's also certified in neuro-linguistic programming, emotional freedom technique, commonly called tapping, and inner child work. Amy is the founder of The Joy Junkie. She also has a podcast by the same name, and she uses her platforms and expertise to help individuals find strength, self-love, and the ability to build a life that is a reflection of all that they truly believe in, and not a lie they continue to live to appease convention or the people they love. Which is why in this episode, we talk about speaking our truth and standing up for ourselves, but the right way. (laughs) And that really is an art, isn't it? A delicate dance that requires skill and practice. Fortunately for us, we have Amy, who has a lot of personal and professional experience in the area, which means that she approaches the subject with empathy and a practicality with tactics grounded in compassion and understanding. During our conversation, we talk about Amy's personal experience and what led to her focus on this area. How did Amy initiate change in a life that was more reflective of who she is at her core? Resolving issues with parents, choosing to share based on the other person's perspective, becoming your own anchor, building conviction around your ideas and approaching communication from a place of strength, and making choices that support the self without feeling selfish. And of course, why it's so important to speak and live your truth. This episode is packed full of wisdom. So I hope you're ready. Let's dive in. Can we start with what it is that you do and how you're helping people in a little bit of your story? Like why you chose this particular area to focus on? Sure. Well, I think like most people who end up being in the helping field, they have some sort of personal situation that they kind of learned from, and then they are able to kind of impart that wisdom. And my story is very much the same uh, journey. But I work as a life coach and a hypnotherapist and a mentor, and I've been in the personal development space for probably about 12 years now. And, you know, when I first jumped into it, I was focusing very heavily on relationships and mostly how to make marriage work. And one of the things that I started to see over and over again was that the relationships had such a breakdown based off of communication. And in my own life, I had really started to shift the way I spoke up for myself, 
how to establish boundaries, letting go of guilt, learning how to say no. And I realized that that was really kind of my wheelhouse and what informed really healthy relationships. So I made sort of a pivot in 2015 and really started focusing on finding your voice and what that meant and how to actually use it. Like, what does it actually sound like to, you know, ask an adult child to move out of the house or to ask for a divorce or to speak up for yourself with your family if you don't believe in the religion you were raised in or, you know, these things where we're just not given a vernacular or a phrasing on how to how to speak up for ourselves. And that really started for me it, probably in about 07 is when it kind of came to a head because I, you know, for a bit of context, I grew up in a very conservative, born-again Christian family. My father was a had a master's in divinity and a doctorate in ministry. So he was def- not he was not fucking around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was on fire for the Lord. And uh and it, it was a beautiful beautiful soul. So, you know, I always had a very good relationship with my father, but he uh sadly passed away in 07. And that was a really pivotal time for me because up until that time, I had always kind of prepped my husband, you know, when we would go visit my family, I would kind of say Okay, no liberal agenda, no gay rights, no talking about Howard Stern or South Park or no cussing, no drinking, like really put up this veneer, this facade of showcasing who we knew they preferred us to be. And my just out for a little little bit of juxtaposition, my I have two younger brothers and they both by all accounts, I was the good kid, right? Like they had difficulty with the law. Both of them did jail time, uh, didn't really go to school, were kind of meandering through career choices. And I had been working since I was 14, put myself through college, got married, moved out of the house. And so then we it all kind of comes to a crescendo when my father passed because at the time I had been working as a makeup artist. So I knew that for sure I wanted to do the makeup for his viewing. So yeah, I did. if you're listening to that, yes, this was dead dad makeup. <laughs> and I performed his, or, you know, did his makeup. And then I also spoke to a crowd of hundreds of people who were there that day. So by all accounts, I really felt like I was winning at daughter, right? So we get back home to my mom's house and she finds it the most opportune time to tell me that she feels as though my father and her had failed as parents because the three of us, myself and my two younger brothers, were not, quote, walking with the Lord. So it was sort of this discount of all of who I was, anything that I had accomplished in my life, things that I was proud of, character traits that I was emboldened by, just kind of didn't matter because I didn't subscribe to the religion I was raised with. So the only thing I could kind of muster in that moment was to say to her, well, you probably shouldn't tell that to a child. I'm like, especially one who just did her dead dad's makeup. And, (laughs) you know, I'm like, ah. maybe don't be a dick to me today. And, and she said, well, that's just how I feel. And I'll tell you what, that was 
a very defining moment where I realized that I could continue down that path of making sure that everybody else was happy, not rocking the boat, you know, not opening up a can of worms. We have all these idioms to describe staying silent. And I decided that if push came to shove and I had to choose between making other people happy and making me happy, I was going to choose me. And I really don't think that it's always an ultimatum and think I, in fact, I think it's rarely an ultimatum, but I made that decision that, okay, if it does come down to that, I'm done choosing everybody else. And that really was the impetus. That was sort of the beginning of me figuring out what it actually sounded like to speak up for myself, to advocate for myself verbally, vocally, in a way that was really powerful. And a lot of that came down to emotional intelligence, which I know is your your wheelhouse, you know? <laughs> yes. So um, so yeah, so that's a bit about me and sort of the the journey that got me here. Yeah, I I think it always takes a moment like that because you get so used to being a certain kind of person, especially if you are someone who doesn't make waves, who doesn't say too much to, you know, or just says enough to keep things easy and keep things quiet and, you know, comfortable. And it always takes something drastic. Like, I just woke up today and now I can see things clearly. It takes something like that to really change things. Uh, but even so, making that kind of change, that kind of life-altering change, because from that point forward, everything you do is going to be different. So how did you make that switch? Or was it like a gradual process? Did you just decide then and there that I'm done and you just changed the very next day or you just started making ch different choices? Or did you have a support system? What was that like? What was your internal setup, external setup like? Well, I would love to say that it was just this magic switch, but it really wasn't. It was years and years of finessing what it meant to communicate effectively. And I'll tell you what, at the very beginning, I was extremely combative. I was very adversarial. I wanted to fight. It was like these floodgates had opened. And now, especially with my father gone, it felt like it felt more like an equal match between my mom and myself instead of me going up against two people who had ideological differences than myself. And so it, I felt a bit more emboldened, I think, because I didn't feel outnumbered. So I, but I was mean and I yelled and screamed and it wasn't until many messes that I had to clean up that I sort of had this epiphany that you can actually speak up for yourself without being an asshole. And that really shifted everything for me. And I think that's something that that disproportionately women experience of and and I certainly can't speak to this, but I'm sure you can. It, as a person of color, there's even more stigma on women speaking up, giving your voice, you know, some credence and depends on what you know various identities you hold. But I always had the assumption that it, it, it was either you're a total doormat or you're a raging bitch, right? You know, to, to get ahead in a man's world, you know, you have to be this fiery, raging bitch. And I think that there's times for that. I genuinely think there's times for that. But when you're talking about a lot of interpersonal relationships, most of the time, if you actually want to make headway, 
with something that you're upset about in a relationship, if you are speaking to that person in a way that you would want to be spoken to, most of the time you have a far, far greater chance of having a successful conversation. So I had to clean up a mess quite a few times. And so this is something that I would definitely impart to everybody listening. A lot of times we'll have sort of this confidence hangover or this speaking up hangover where we've actually advocated for ourselves and then the other person isn't happy about it or has we've gotten some pushback. And so we take it all back and we say, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. And we go back to being sort of the one who acquiesces. So what I ended up doing is I recognized that the way I was delivering the information to my mom was really shitty. And that's what I actually needed to apologize, not for my opinion, not for my stance, not for my needs. So I would go to her and say, hey, listen, I still feel really strongly about X, Y, or Z, but I should not have communicated that to you in that way. You did not deserve to be spoken to in that manner. And for that, I am sorry. But I do need you to know that I still do feel very strongly. So you're you're taking back your delivery. You're apologizing for your delivery, but not about how you feel about something. And and that took me many years to figure out. And you know that's really how the you know stand up for yourself without being a dick concept that I work from all the time was really born. It was this idea of speaking up for yourself, speaking your truth, but doing it with grace and kindness. Yeah, but I think anybody who's listening to the story, a lot of those people would be like, I get it. I get it so strongly because I think it happens with all of us. I felt the same way when I started to, when I realized that I have got to communicate how I'm feeling. I think initially you are just so ready to speak up and so sort of agitated about not continuing to be that person, the person that you've been up to that point, that you don't really care about refinement during that that very volatile very sensitive period it's all about getting it out that's right getting it out even if it if if it comes out in a very combative very like assholeish way <laughs> so, well yeah. if you think yeah saying unrefined i mean that is it that's a great way to describe it if we if we take a situation that many of us are used to like let's say you're driving along and you accidentally cut somebody off and they're furious at you and they're like, fuck you, mother, you know, like flipping you off and screaming and yelling. What's your response? Your response is not typically, you know what? Thank you. I'm going to do so much better. I just really appreciate you bringing that to my attention. I can't wait to be better for you. No, we never do that. We go into fight or flight. We either become combative or we're like, oh, sorry. Oh my God. Oh, oh, you know? So, Think about that because when we finally express something, a grievance or an upset or a boundary or something that we want to share with, you know, a partner, a best friend, a colleague, and we've tempered it for so long, we've gathered sort of this arsenal of irritation. We've been so pissed at them for so long that we feel like our delivery is justified. We think, yeah. I'm in so much pain. Or they have been so awful that I am allowed to speak with such acrimony and vitriol. And now, 
and what I I do want to say as a caveat is my, I'm talking about overall fairly healthy relationships. I'm not talking about abuse because the advice that I would give you in the face of somebody who's abusive would not necessarily be to have a really thoughtful, calm conversation because <laughs> sometimes that's not possible. So, but I'm talking about a majority of our relationships. If you're speaking from that place of anger, it's highly likely that that other person isn't going to hear you or isn't going to be excited about rectifying whatever it is that you want headway on. So yeah, you're, the refinement is key. And a lot of that's emotional intelligence. Yeah. And I think it takes time. It, it can't be done instantly. I think refinement is something that like with anything else in your life, it's just something so much more sensitive than anything else in your life. That's why it takes, I think, in fact, it takes a little bit longer to get to that point where you can handle something so volatile as your emotions without actually giving into them. That's right. But yeah, I think you put it perfectly that that made so much sense. And I think I also appreciate that you are the example that you're using is one where your parents were involved, because I think those are the most complicated situations because you so desperately want them to work. And there is so much love and adoration there, even even when your parent has been, you know, has done things that you just cannot justify, even in the most generous mood. But you still want to understand. You want some kind of explanation right. so that you can forgive them and maybe try again. But sometimes there is just no resolution. I'm glad you brought that up because it, we are very, well, first of all, we're biologically programmed to turn to our parents for support. They are our caregivers. And so we learn, okay, you're supposed to provide for my needs. And then through, for for many of us, we don't, we don't get that luxury, right? And, but I really believe that we don't stop rooting for them. We don't stop fighting for that possible opportunity that they will magically be what we need or they will magically say the right thing or support us or whatever. And, you know, a lot of it, I think, comes down to recognizing, have I communicated in a way where I've actually set them up for success? Because a lot of times I'll talk to clients or students and I'll say, well, you know, talk to me about what's have you conversed with this person about this? Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling. And they'll be like, Amy, I have told him, I have told her, I have said what I need to say. And I'm like, okay, how have you said it? How have you said it? Because it doesn't count unless it's a really thoughtful, well-articulated boundary. Because if you are screaming and yelling at someone or you're being passive aggressive or you're doing things to get things, that doesn't count as a thoughtful expression of communication. You have not really given them the opportunity to be what you need. And I see this a lot where people just write people off as, oh, you know, my family's just toxic or it's just a toxic work environment or it's a toxic because it's so much e easier to label people like that than it is to really look at our own role in the communication. Have I really thoughtfully, calmly articulated exactly what my issue is and put in a very reasonable request. Most of the time, that's a no. And 
I am not saying there aren't toxic people out there for fuck sure, but there are definitely these little buzzwords that pop around in personal development where we go, ah, that's what my parents are toxic. Okay. Now I don't have to work. Now I don't have to look at my own communication method. Yeah. 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 The easy way out. Yeah. I'll add something here. It's something that has really helped me and I think has helped other people as well that you have to, even though we are one family, when it comes to your parents, you have to remember that they have lived a whole life before you even happened in the world. And you have to remember that because I realized something as I was going through my struggle, I realized that my parents have no idea about emotional intelligence because they never taught me all of that. Even though my parents have always been in my corner, their method of doing it may not have been exactly what I wanted it to be, but they've always been in my corner. So it made me realize that clearly they don't quite understand how to do this. They're getting it wrong because nobody ever taught them. And they were like one of six kids both of them. So they didn't get the attention. They didn't get the the sort of, you know, where you sit your kid down and you actually teach them how to talk to a person like a person. <laughs> so that's right. Yes. You have to remember that they're sometimes in, in a lot of the cases, your parent, your sibling, your friend, they're doing the best that they can. Right. Right. And how you're going to shape that from that point forward is up to you. You can change it. People do change. Even, you know, habits that have been with them for like, yeah, from the very beginning. That's right. I think, and that at that point, what you're saying is going to make so much sense. How you say it, how you communicate it, how you present your side of things is going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to define how, your relationship from that point forward. So that was so incredibly helpful. Yeah. I think it also depends on the willingness of, like, if we're talking about parents from a different generation or even different cultural upbringing, it depends on their willingness to change, you know, because if there, if there's something that you're really needing and they never experienced that, nobody ever taught them, and they're also not willing to hear it or they're not willing to, or they're just going to make you wrong for it then it becomes a boundary issue. Then it becomes a legitimate grieving where you have to kind of mourn the loss of what you wish that person or those parents or that friend, that partner, that you wish they were and that you see the possibility for. But we can't force people to evolve and grow and learn and develop. So I think it's about understanding what capacity they have, you know, and and that's something that I've I've really learned with my mom is that the more I enter into conversations with her from a vulnerable, soft, non-accusatory place, she's she really surprises me and she rises to the occasion, even though we could not have more differing opinions politically, spiritually, pretty much anything of substance we have, we're diametrically opposed. So then it becomes, uh, you know, being kind of a fierce guardian about what you choose to share. And, you know, I, I feel very strongly about speaking your truth into ears that can hear you. I don't believe that all ears are capable of hearing you. And sometimes we wish that our parents were those ears, again, because we're rooting for them. But they might not ever be able. They might not have the... Uh, emotional intelligence. They might not have the willingness. They might not have the capacity or the understanding to be what you need. And 
So all you can really do is speak up for that and ask for that. And then based off of whatever information you're receiving, make powerful decisions for yourself around boundaries and and what do I share? You know, so there's certain things that 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 are thrilling for me or I'll give you an example. I did uh, I've done a couple of completely nude photo shoots. And they were incredibly empowering. And I was thrilled about it. I had an incredible uh, experience. The first one, gosh, this was probably almost 20 years ago now, um, there was an amazing henna artist who the only thing that I had on were sort of like these little henna, like hot pants, kind of like little underwear. And I did just this beautiful photo shoot. I was really excited for it. The henna artist actually put my name and my husband's name into the design because I was sharing with her about my story with my husband. So that's a perfect example of something I was thrilled about and would have loved to share with my mom. Yeah. But, but there's no way she could hold that without total shame. Like, inflicting a shit ton of shame my way. And it was not something that I wanted to incur shame around because I was incredibly proud. So in that situation, I go, okay, I'm not going to speak my truth into those ears because they cannot hear me. They cannot support me. And so I think sometimes we have that reckoning of no matter how much I wish I had that mom who was like, oh my God, honey, these are amazing. I have to recognize what am I looking for? What am I needing? And I'm needing support and championing. And that's not who I'm going to get it from. Yeah. Yeah. It's like your sex life, perhaps, you know, mm -hmm. you can have like the most adventurous sex life, but you don't necessarily have to tell your parent everything. They wouldn't want to know the details there, even <laughs> though the way you're managing your sex life is really, you know, you're doing it like a boss and you're just taking charge and you're not shy about anything and you ask for what you want. But you're not actually going to tell your mom that, yeah, I, you know, met this guy and I took him home and it was awesome. <laughs> she probably, like, I often find those, you know, sensitive areas in our conversations, especially an Indian family. Uh, We're like old fashioned in that respect, at least. My parents' generation is very old fashioned, arranged marriages. My parents had an mm -hmm. arranged marriage. So the first time I told them that, you know what, premarital sex is completely acceptable, I was about 15 at that time. So you can wow. imagine. They should really have lost their shit, but they didn't. They were so quiet about it. They didn't want to like say anything that that could guilt me. Obviously, I wasn't sexually active at the time, but even so, just the fact that their daughter was championing premarital sex <laughs> was good so for were, you. Yeah, they were like, "Hmm, okay, yes, what you're saying makes sense, but maybe don't make any decisions right now." So they were just, <laughs> But they were like adorable during that conversation. But since we had like we had some very bad conversations as well where things, you know, went south fast. But then I had to understand that, you know, they're coming from a very protective place. Sure. You have to also remember that sometimes your parents just refuse to accept that you're a grown up who can actually make these decisions and make them from a place of experience and knowledge. So, yeah, but your, your example makes like a lot of sense. You cannot share everything with your parents. You have to remember that. Yeah, and it's sad because you want to share everything, but sometimes you just have to let go of little pieces of your experience that are simply not for them. Well, you know, even outside from outside of like sticky topics, sometimes it's just a matter of the perspective of that other person and 
how they yeah. kind of operate. So for example, I've definitely worked with people who would be really excited about a new job opportunity and they would want to tell their parents. And then every time there was something that they were excited about, their parents would be like, well, well, how are you going to work with your medical benefits or how are, what do you, what do you mean you're just going to move across? Like there was no ability to see anything other than sort of a negative perspective, but yet every time they had something exciting, they wanted that person to come through for them. And it doesn't have to just be parents. Sometimes this is our, our friend circle. Sometimes this is our partner who we are in relationship with. And that can be really challenging to feel like you want them to, you know, rise to the occasion, but because of where they are in their life, their perspective is always one of negativity or, um, or they've sort of had this nothing is ever good enough perspective with you. Right. So I think, again, it's about being really deliberate and understanding what you need inside of relationships and then creating boundaries. If, if that's something that, that isn't being met after you've really articulated it, after you've, yeah. you've gone to bat for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And can I ask, like, as from your experience, sharing your knowledge here, I believe that you can do that in a relationship, set boundaries, communicate your needs, when you actually really believe in what whatever it is that you're saying, and you feel strong in your own right, you feel strong as an individual, and then you can maybe, you know, bring that strength to the relationship as well, and all the conflicts that happen within that, in that area. But how does one, according to you, learn to do all of that, learn to become their own anchor, learn to, you know, identify what it is that they want and come from a place of strength? Well, that's definitely not something that we can wrap up in a short podcast. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) In fact, I did a podcast episode that I titled why your personal development journey is never done. And I think that's one thing that that sometimes in the personal development sphere we get sort of this misunderstanding that we'll we'll magically be able to unlock our self-worth or our confidence or how we speak to ourselves and then we're done. Like we've arrived and now all conversations are going to be easy, all choices and decisions for our life are going to be no problem. And that's really not the case. Really what personal development is about is a continual check-in of how you're feeling, of what you want in this world, about series of decisions over and over again. And the tools really become a new way to manage life. It doesn't mean that you're void of hardship or that you're immune to fear. It just means that you contend with fear from a different place of power or that you hear that negative self-talk and you choose to reroute it. You choose for it to not necessarily be your truth. So I think you can go, you know, if we're talking about specifically speaking up or boundaries or tough conversations, I oftentimes will say you can attack it from the outside or the inside. The inside is mandatory, but everybody is different in in what creates shifts for them. So for example, if we attacked it from the outside, it would look like a series of actually practicing 
telling somebody like, hey, I actually find that really offensive. I'd appreciate it if you didn't say that in front of me, or I'd really like to change the, su- the subject. Uh, or if you're pregnant and somebody wants to rub your pregnant belly who you don't know at all, you know, and be like, you know what? I actually find that really uncomfortable. I'd appreciate it if you d- do not touch my body without consent. Thank you. You know, like, it, so that would be an external way practicing the tough conversations, practicing the boundaries. The internal piece is starting with your relationship to self. And you can do them simultaneously. You can do them, go with whatever feels the most easy for you. I find for a majority of my students and clients, the way we work is we do sort of the inside out. We start with what are the disempowering beliefs that have you believing that your voice doesn't matter that much or that it's better to stay silent or it's better to make sure everybody else is happy because those are sort of like the roots of the tree, right? And so then we've got our branches and then all of a sudden our fruit is dying and we're like, why the fuck is my fruit dying? And you're trying to figure out what's happening there, but it's really the roots. It's figuring out what are these core beliefs that everything else in my life is springing from. And the through line that I see for most people is that there's a disempowering belief in their core subconscious mind, something around, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy, I'm not deserving. We have all these different semantics around it. I don't matter, I'm not valuable, but it all comes down to worthiness. It comes down to believing that I am enough as I am. So then we start to see behaviors that follow suit. So If you don't believe that you are genuinely valuable or worthy, and then somebody says something offensive in front of you, it becomes so much more appealing to just let that go, to just let them say that. Or when somebody at work oversteps or a partner says something that feels a little, oh, that doesn't feel so good. We have that response to people, please, to just acquiesce, make sure everybody else is okay. But what we don't realize is that when we do those sorts of behaviors over and over and over again, habitually, we're sending that subconscious message to ourselves that everybody else matters more than self. So there isn't a really great succinct way to wrap up that question other than to recognize it's both. It's an internal component and it's an external component. And you can attack it from both ends simultaneously or sort of one at a time. Yeah. It takes time and it is a continuous process. And I think that would put every listener at ease because we all want to get to the other side very quickly. And when it doesn't happen, we feel very disheartened because as we go through life, there are so many people involved and so many sensitive places involved, like your job, like when you're dealing with your kids, that it is important to remember that if it didn't happen today, it doesn't mean it's never going to happen. Maybe, you know, someday you're going to figure it out and get it right. And maybe you won't get all of it right, but you'll get some of it right. And that some of it would make everything okay. And it would be just enough for you to, you know, step up your relationships. So thank you so much for clar- for saying that, that there is no like perfect way here and there's no like simple practical method to do this, but you have to start and, you know, what you've proposed makes a lot of sense. I will make sure to share that episode as well so that people have something else to, you know, uh, add yeah. to this. Well, you know, it's it, it. I find that a lot of people think 
I use the term uniquely damaged, where people feel like I'm uniquely damaged. Everybody else can learn how to change. Everyone else can. And one of the things I pride myself in so much in the work that I do is that it's literally science based in a lot of neuroscience. And it has to do with the wiring of the brain and also how our mind works. So as a hypnotherapist, we talk a lot about the mind as sort of a little bit of a departure from the brain to two kind of different concepts. But if we look at the mind, for example, roughly 88 to 95% of our mind's power is our subconscious faculty of the mind. So the subconscious is responsible for habits, beliefs, core values. So because it's that large percentage, it's running the show. So then we have the conscious part of the mind, which is roughly 5 to 12% of the mind. And that's where we have logic, reason, rationale, willpower. So basically what happens for all of us is we experience things, usually as children, sometimes later, but usually up until about the age of eight, that we start making associations and we start realizing maybe, oh, if I try, if my parent is always angry or always drinking or always ignoring me, if I adopt these people-pleasing behaviors, I can stay safe. So now we have a positive association in that subconscious large engine of the mind that says people-pleasing equals safe. People-pleasing equals safe. So then you get introduced to the wonderful world of personal development and you think, oh, cool, I'm just going to tell myself you're allowed to establish boundaries. But guess what? That's in the conscious part of the mind. That's logic. That's reason. But if there is a deep-seated belief that's in opposition to that statement, guess which one's going to win? That's why a lot of people don't have much luck with affirmations because there's such an extreme kickback against the belief that that you've got kind of running the show. So I say all of that to say you aren't uniquely damaged. There's nothing wrong with you. It's likely that there's just something wrong with the belief system and beliefs are malleable. We can change that. Yeah, that was very helpful. And I don't think it gets said enough because a lot of the time I've seen workshops where people are like, you know, look into the mirror and repeat out for me. I know I've done it too, but you need to remind everyone that it's okay. Take your time with it. And there has to be like something reinforcing that. That old belief has to be taken apart before you plant something new in its place. And how do you do that? You do that with your how you change your experience, how you change your actual life and how you change your actual interactions it cannot all be happening in your head without it actually getting reflected in your life so thank you so much that was put in like a very clear concise way I really appreciate that sure sure (laughs) okay so let's talk about you know when it's about just making individual choices in life how do we make sure that the path we are walking is one of you know uh, self-care self-love and it's not us making blatantly selfish choices and what is like how would you define selfish choices because I think again that is a concept that would differ for each and every one of us yeah depending on our culture depending on how we were brought up so I would love to get your take on this 
Well, first of all, I I think selfish is the new black. Personally, I feel <laughs> like at 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 least in the the demographic that I work with, a large swath of women and those who identify as women have a much harder time occupying any space for themselves. So selflessness is actually what's the problem. Chronic self-sacrifice is typically the issue I see. Selfishness is not the problem. Selfishness is what's being called for. It just has such a negative connotation in our society. So we don't necessarily even have to use that word, but even something like self-care or tending to self, creating an importance and a value around self. And I'll speak from my own personal experience. I'm not sure how this was for you growing up. But if you were born with or raised with any extreme religious dogma, a majority of uh, at least the Abrahamic or kind of Christian faiths are rooted in ignoring self, in not being good, in being damaged and sinful and needing saving. So there can be a lot of wiring. And then especially for us in the U.S., that's the culture we were founded on was this idea of self-sacrifice, you're not enough, you need saving. So it runs extremely deep, extremely deep. And so I don't mean to do a theological dissertation here, but but I think it's important to recognize for most people listening, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if ever they've been called selfish, my guess is it's from somebody who doesn't like a boundary you've set or doesn't like that you're actually standing up for yourself. Because I will tell you what, if you are used to being a people pleaser, if you are used to putting everybody in front of yourself, and I see this with my students all the time, the minute you yeah. start learning how to advocate for yourself, you will find out real fucking quickly who's on board and who's not. Because the majority of people in your life will like the subservient version of you. They like the doormat. They like the one who's like, oh, Amy will do it. Oh, oh, Krati will do it. Oh, I know. Yeah, I don't have to worry about that. And when you say, oh, actually, I'm not available. Thank you for thinking of me, though, but I'm going to have to politely decline. And they go, what? You're being so selfish, right? People hurl that (laughs) nomenclature around when they don't like a boundary. So, So to answer your question, I think it's about really nurturing a really healthy relationship with yourself, whatever that might look like, starting in therapy, working with a coach, digging into some personal development books, starting to really work with intuition because that's another thing that we kind of breed out of our youth. We say, we look at what makes logical sense. We don't look at like, our gut and what we really want. So a great example would be, let's say you are incredibly brilliant and you got a full ride scholarship to some medical university, but you in your heart of hearts, all you want to do is be an artist or a musician. And everybody in your life goes, you can't throw away this opportunity. It looks good on paper. You have to go to this university, even though 
the thought of doing that for the rest of your life makes you want to pull your eyes out. And, and even if it was a life that was really hard or difficult to make it in the music industry or as an artist, that's what your soul's calling for. But our society doesn't nurture that. It nurtures the logic and the reason. It doesn't nurture the gut and the intuition. At least I can speak to sort of the U.S. And, And so I think there's a whole process of unlearning that cultural narrative of really paying attention. We do it in relationships all the time where we have a gut hit like, ooh, I don't like what that person just said or that really rubbed me the wrong way. But then we do what I like to call the cognitive override, where we go, um, I'm probably asking for too much. Oh, I'm probably being too needy. Uh, we override our intuition. So I think the more we can start getting in touch with our intuitive self, we can start making really empowered choices from a place of fulfillment instead of obligation to other people. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It reminds me of this one um dialogue from Frankie and Grace, this show that I'm loving right now. Uh, And that show, I think, is a must watch for anyone who wants to be empowered, like all the women who want to feel empowered. There's this one line from that show. If it's not okay for you, it's not okay for anyone. Yes. I think that's it. I think that really, that's something we should just put up on a wall and keep reminding ourselves of that one line and what you said makes so much sense especially i am glad that you you know started your answer with talking by talking about women and how much they need to be selfish to actually change the freaking world because why are there so many more expectations from women in india women when they get married they may have a job just as complicated and difficult as their husbands but they're supposed to come home and take care of their home cook clean get up no fuck that why like if you don't do all of that you're not a good mom it's crazy to me yeah no and and i think the i'm really optimistic about the younger generations too that um that i especially you know for me growing up uh i'm a gen xer most of my friends' moms stayed home. Like it wasn't that much of a departure from the boomer generation, right? But now we're starting to see millennials and Z gens being like, oh, no, no, that doesn't work for me. Like why would, why wouldn't I want somebody to do my laundry? Why wouldn't I want somebody to, you know, no, no, no. It's not babysitting. Yeah. You're actually parenting. You take care of the child as well. Right. Like there's just a lot of that sort of social construct that I think women all over the world are saying like, "Mm, yeah, I'm going to opt out of that bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. I The first time, you know, it hit me that I don't want to get married. Mm-hmm. I was like, because I, I kept forcing myself into this idea that but you have to get married. And then suddenly it was like, but says who? I don't really have to do anything I don't want to do. That's exactly and I right. Thought, yeah. And I thought it was going to be impossible to convince my parents, but they were on board. They got it. So if you get it and you come from a place of conviction, I think... The people who love you, genuinely love you, will support you. They, or, and if the, even if they don't support you, you have to also remember how many other people you can inspire to fight a similar fight. I always remind myself of that. I'm a massive superhero fan, so that always <laughs> gets me to the other side. Like you, you have to do this. <laughs> well, and then also kind of staying with the superhero metaphor, 
if the person that you, you know, if your family doesn't support you or your spouse doesn't support you, you find the other superheroes that are part of your team that are fighting yeah. the same fight. That's where yeah. you, you, that's where you turn for support, right? So, yeah, I think I, I'm hugely inspired by some of the younger generations and just how they're seeing, how they're viewing relationships, how they're viewing what they have to or don't have to do, what they're fighting for. You know, I've been seeing all sorts of people who maybe you would even dig this. There was two women, they were best friends and they just they decided to get legally married so that they could do all their finances together, they could make investments together, they could raise their children together. They don't have a sexual relationship at all. Um, but I'm like, yes to that. Like, let's reinvent what a family yes. structure looks like. Let's do whatever the fuck we want to do because we can. Yeah. Yeah. And let's I, redefine it. That's that's amazing. I will share it because I know there's an article, like there's a huge article about this, like these two women. I, I don't know if I read their names or if they're like public about it, but there was an article. They, I saw them on TikTok. I saw them okay. actively talking about it on okay, TikTok. So awesome. it could be more than one couple. I don't know. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so for my my husband and myself, we've been together 24 years. We've been married for 22 and we still have separate, completely separate finances. We split everything 50-50. We have – he does his cooking. I do my cooking. He does his groceries. I do my groceries. We have separate sides of the fridge. We share some condiments, but – separate sides of the pantry. So we literally never argue about anything domestic because we are we really don't argue ever, but you're responsible for your shit like in a damn adult. Like I don't know why that's so hard, <laughs> but it works amazing for us because the rest of our relationship gets to be romantic and fun and we get to we don't have to argue about can you please take the trash out? Can you please unlo- like we everything's on a system that's completely equitable. So there's ways to create it to work for you. Imagine what the world would be like if we were to remove all the preconceived notions and all of these conditions and all the have-tos from the world. And everyone was just free to define, you know, their life on their own terms and decide what they want to do and what is right for them. It would be a, an amazing, incredible world. And there wouldn't be as many fights in the, <laughs> in the world, as much discord in the world. Well, I think you would appreciate yeah. this. I I have always felt that if we were all taught emotional intelligence at a very early age, that it, especially those who identify as male, uh, we we would totally change the world. Yes, you know. And yes. I, I had this great fortune with my father, where he he was just such a great example of emotional intelligence in so many ways. But he would do this little game with me. So anybody out there, parents out there, this might be a fun thing for you to do with your child, where he would say to me, show me scared. And I'd go, uh, like make a scared face. And then he'd show, show me happy, ah, you know, happy. Show me, you know, confused, you know. So I got very comfortable being demonstrative with my emotions, that my emotions weren't something to hide no matter what end of the spectrum they were on. And one of the other things that he was really good about doing is if if he ever lost his temper and disciplined us kind of out of anger, he would come and actually apologize. So he would come to us and say, this is for all three of us, he would say, 
I disciplined you out of anger instead of out of love, and that's not okay. What you did was not okay either, but I should have not yelled or whatever he did, right? Will you please forgive me? So I learned very early on what it was like to own your shit, ask for forgiveness, be vulnerable, own your mistakes, you know, and and how to be comfortable with emotion. But I, I certainly don't have to tell you this, but I think that could absolutely change violence and, yes. and you know, because when you don't know how to deal with your emotions, it comes out as anger. Anger yes. is that lovely secondary emotion that just yeah. is a catch-all for everything else you might feel, which obviously then turns to violence many times. So... I'm definitely on board with the emotional intelligence factor. Yes. No, the exercise that you've actually recommended is an exercise that's recommended by psychologists all around the world to parents uh, to help their kids through, you know, the, that phase. And in fact, children, they have so much empathy, so much empathy that if they see someone crying, they're going to start crying because that is the only response that makes sense to them. And I read about this study where the, the, they observed these children and if one kid is crying in the playroom, what this kid is, and the mother comes, the, that crying kid's mother is trying to shush him and trying to help him and trying to make things okay for him. The other kid, the kid that was watching this kid cry, would go running to his mother and he will drag him to the crying kid because to him, only his mother can help this kid. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. oh. Yes. So imagine that's common across the world. Doesn't matter where you were born. We all have that capacity for empathy when we are kids. Unless, of course, there are cases where you are the abnormalities of a nature where it goes, you know, it, it's not about emotions. It's about your um, physiology. Yes. Then it's different. But those are like extreme cases. There are, for, for most of us, we have that capacity, that unbelievable capacity for empathy. And when you don't nurture that, it is such a tragedy because then they those children grow up to be adults who are probably going to hurt other people and probably going to hurt themselves. So it's it doesn't mean that is going to be your life. It simply means that that is a lost opportunity, but it can always be corrected. Any resources that you would recommend to our listeners and any programs that you offer that can help them? Sure. Well, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown speaking of of empathy. She talks a lot about empathy and vulnerability. And I mean, she's got a ton of books, Daring Greatly, uh, The uh, Dare to Lead, Gifts of Imperfection. So a lot of her work is, again, rooted in scientific data and research, which I find so comforting that it's not this just like woo-woo concept. It's literally how it's the science of human behavior. And I think that can give us a little sense of relief of like, oh, that's why I did that. Beha- okay. <laughs> I'm wired that way. Okay. Yeah. Also, there's an incredible book by Emily and Amelia Nagowski. It's called Burnout. And it has a lot to do with sort of that overachieving sort of the women women who feel like they have to do absolutely everything and how that's creating sort of a a fry of the synapses and and what we can do to actually shift that. Emily Nagowski also is a sex educator and she has an incredible book called Come As You Are that's specifically about uh, 
people who identify as women, female sexuality. And it it was a game changer for myself and a, and a lot of friends that I have as well. So so there's a couple of resources outside of myself. And then if you're interested in, in anything that I've got going on, I've been doing a podcast for about eight and a half years. So it's a huge reservoir of conversations like this. But for much of that time, I did solo episodes with my husband. So I was essentially delivering the information that he would kind of chime in. So you can get some really great insight over there. I do a lot of very like kind of factual, like five steps of this. I like things very linear and practical. And and then if so that's called uh, the Joy Junkie Show podcast. And then if you're interested in any of the work that I do, you can find everything over at thejoyjunkie.com. Junkie is J-U-N-K-I-E. I have free hypnosis tracks and workbooks and workshops and all sorts of stuff. So I would say go sink your teeth into that stuff first, kind of get to know me, get to understand my flow and how I how I share information. Uh, and then on social, I hang out um, mostly on Instagram, but I'm pretty much everywhere under the handle uh, The Joy Junkie. So yeah, come hang out, get yourself some free stuff. Awesome. I will make sure to share all of these links. And uh, for my last question, if you were only allowed to give one advice to the listeners that could make help them build a better life, what would that one advice be? I would probably say get a handle of get a handle on your uh, inner conversation. And it, because that is one of those things where it, it, you could listen to a podcast here and there. You could listen to an audiobook. You could even take a class. But you are with your inner conversation and narrative 24-7. And so if you feel empowered for an hour or two, but then you go back to just shit-talking yourself for hours and hours and hours, guess which one's going to win? Like, no wonder you're not creating any massive change. But what I will also say is not everybody hears definitive a definitive voice. So when we talk about an inner critic, or I like to call it your inner shit talker, a lot of times we think of it in literal phrases, like a voice that you kind of hear in your mind that says you're not enough, or that's not possible for you, or you're so disgusting, or whatever it might be. Sometimes we don't actually have those literal words. Sometimes it's more of an essence or an emotion or a feeling. So I would say start tuning into that, start checking into that. I've done tons of podcasts on that. You can find a lot of information out there. But that it, it, when you start to change that inner conversation, everything else changes. And I remember having uh, doing a retreat, and we obviously were packing a ton of information into just three days. And one of the attendees said, "Okay, what? Where's one place that I can start? What's the one thing that you think I can focus on?" And I said, without a shadow of the doubt, how you speak to yourself, how the inner language, conversation, emotion, feeling, whatever it is, that that is your relationship to self. And uh, so I would impart the same thing to everybody listening here. That was the amazing Amy Smith. If you want to know more about our guest or you want to explore the resources mentioned during the episode, the links will be in the episode description. If you want to dive into similar content, go to my website, kratimehra.com, and there's a whole bunch of them for you to explore. 
Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, please do rate and review the show on iTunes and share the episode on Instagram. It will help the show reach a wider audience. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed creating it. Now, I'll be back next week. Till then, please do take care of yourself.